Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul (coughs) refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, your children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God... When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Allow me to pray. Father God, we ask you to be with us in this uh, time. God, we have been through Exodus. We have seen your great works and your mighty wonders. And so, Father, now I pray, Lord, that you will move us beyond just reading of them to actually feel them in our own lives, to feel their their power and their presence and the way you work and fight for us. So, Father, we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. It is important for Christians to give themselves over fully to the whole counsel of God's Word. This, of course, includes books like Genesis and Exodus, as ancient as they are and as intimidating as they may seem. They are essential for building and strengthening our understanding of the gospel. There is a danger, however, when we study these Old Testament books, if we study them as if they are mere history, or mere stories, or some sort of virtue tales that are only concerned with us living a moral life. Studying the Old Testament books in this way neglects the true treasure that is contained within them. Reading books like Genesis and Exodus as mere 
history, mere narrative threatens to make them irrelevant to us in our current daily context, in our own situations. We read Genesis and Exodus as if that was, uh, uh, as if they're recording events that once were, but have nothing to do with us now. The far worse possibility of reading Genesis and Exodus like that is that it tends to communicate God as if some, this is who he once was, but no longer is. That this is a different God in a different time period who do, who did different types of things. It's very dangerous if we do that. Now to be sure, books like Genesis and Exodus are historical. They really happened. And they accurately record true events in history. They are narrative and they are creatively retelling the story of what God did in the past. And yet, they must be read and studied for more than just history and for more than us just to be captivated by a good narrative. We must read Genesis and Exodus with an eye towards how they apply to our own lives. How do they, how do they come powerfully alive in our daily situations? So therefore, we read these books knowing that they were written to us to deliver us hope, to give us instruction, to provide warnings and encouragement, and ultimately to bring us to the feet of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. Now with this in mind, along with the fact that we've been studying Genesis and Exodus for the past two years together, if, if you're new with us this morning, we have spent at least two years going through Genesis, and now we are one-third of the way through Exodus. We've studied other books in between, like First Timothy and some other little things here and there, um, but we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. And so, it seems worth asking How should books like Genesis and Exodus come alive in our daily situations and in our daily lives? Now, I, as a pastor, know that there are many of us here that are slowly marching to the holidays. Some of us are excited. Christmas trees are already up. Christmas movies are out. Christmas lights are shining. But there's others of us that are dreading the holidays. This might be your first Christmas without your husband or without your wife. This may be a Christmas that you don't really want to remember or be prepared for. This may feel like a time that you don't want to put out a Christmas tree. Presents really don't mean much. Lights don't bring any kind of cheerfulness. So it seems to me, just before we open up a new series on Christmas, that it would be good just to pause for a moment and consider, how does what we have been studying in Exodus... Come to us and step up into our, our a need, step into our harm, our, our hurtful situations, our pain, especially in moments of grief and suffering. How does Exodus come alive to people who are struggling? How does Exodus, Exodus become relevant to people who are suffering? Now to see how we turn to Psalm 77, in which Asaph The psalm-writing priest teaches us how to cling to God's past wonders, His works, and to bring those into our present afflictions. As we will see through the words of the psalmist, the Old Testament books of the Bible, specifically Genesis and Exodus, bring sweet, timely, nourishing hope in even our deepest, darkest nights. Now, as with every psalm, 
Uh, I have uh, the privilege of diving into the commentaries and reading about a thousand different uh, structures and proposed breakups for every psalm. So, as with this psalm, scholars offer many, many different outlines. And this is how we should read it, and this is how we should understand it. But for me, I'm going to break it up into two parts, evenly into two parts. And each part is going to have three stanzas underneath it. I think that breakup's important for us because... The first half of the, of the psalm, verses 1 through 9, deals with real, honest lament. Just real, honest, transparent sorrow that is being communicated. As we will see, Asaph is transparent in his struggle and his heartache. He talks about his, his heartbreak and his grief in verses 1 through 3, his unrest and his uneasiness in verses 4 through 6. And then he just, in all honesty, says, I'm confused. I have all sorts of questions in verses 6 through 9. But then we get to verse 10 and the tone changes. It's in verse 10 that the psalmist swings, moves from lament to hope. Accordingly, the second half of the psalm, verses 10 through 20, deals specifically with trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. In 10 through through 12, he commits himself to remember the past works of God. And then in verses 13 through 15, he remembers God's faithfulness in his people's suffering, in his people's exile, specifically by mentioning Jacob and Joseph. And we'll talk about why those two names are important here in just a moment. And then he goes on to recall God's faithfulness in bringing his people out of suffering through Exodus, by mentioning names like Moses and Aaron. So, I think, as we go through this psalm, I think we're going to see how the psalmist takes Genesis and Exodus, he takes the promises and God's work, and he applies them like medicine to his own aching, painful, wounded heart. And I think we're going to learn how to do that. We don't know what the situation was. Was he grieving a national tragedy? Did Israel just go through some kind of terrorist attack from the Ammonites? We don't know if he was grieving the loss of a loved one. Did his wife just die? Has his child just been given some kind of, some kind of bad terminal diagnosis? We don't know if he had some kind of chronic sickness. Did he have some kind of disease that made his joints hurt and his back hurt and his brain hurt? Did he have this all night long fever that just kept him up at night. We don't know. And the fact that his poetic lament doesn't stress what exactly the situation was means that we can make his song our song. Because he doesn't tell us what exactly is going on, we can take his song and apply it to any suffering situation that we have. Any kind of moment of turmoil, any kind of moment of despondency, Asaph's words powerfully apply to us. The psalmist teaches us, borrowing from Paul's terminology, how to mourn, but not to mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn as those who have faith in the God who once worked things like the Exodus and creation. We mourn as those who have faith in our God who delivers us from our bitterness and from our bondage. I hope you see how extremely relevant this is for you. 
Our modern context and many modern churches do not prepare us to suffer well. They do not teach us how to lament. On the one hand, culture teaches us that our one and only goal is to avoid suffering at all costs. Our goal in making money, our goal in buying a house, our goal in getting married is to avoid any kind of discomfort, any kind of pain, any kind of suffering that we might go through. Our culture teaches us that is our one and only dream in life is a life free from those things. And so when people in our culture inevitably suffer, they don't know how to deal with it. Their answer is despair, despondency, let's end it all. We know that's not right. And then on the other hand, we've gone to churches for years, and churches, don't, they don't teach us about biblical lamentations. Nobody wants to do a sermon study in, in lamentations or, or do a, a sermon study through the Psalms of lament. Most churches want the happier side of things. Let's study the good things. Let's study light things. Let's study Proverbs. Let's study these things that give us good hope and joy, but let's not study lament and The result is that Christians are implicitly told that they must put on a mask. They must feign faith as if everything's okay. Let's pretend. We're we're subtly told that the most faithful among us are those who do not grieve. Are those that do not shed tears. Are those that do not ask questions. So with this... Between, with us being between a rock and a hard place, culture not preparing us, and many churches not preparing us, it seems to me to be very relevant to take time and just learn, as God's people, how to lament well. How to lament biblically. How to suffer with an Exodus-like faith. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're not going to talk about despairing. We're not going to talk about concealment. We're going to talk about transparent, honest lament that leads to real hope. The first point we must learn is that God gives us the freedom to lament. He does not expect us to keep our mourning quiet or to pretend that we are not grieving. He does not expect you to put on a brave face and pretend as if your faith is never shaken. God wants you to mourn. God wants you to grieve. God wants you to lay your heart bare before Him. To engage in honest, heartfelt lament is biblical and God-honoring. And this is exactly what we're going to see from Asaph's first few verses. Asaph begins by honestly speaking about his own heartache. Just listen to his words. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord... In the night, my hand is stretching out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Whatever situation was causing Asaph's grief, one thing is absolutely clear. It was enough to make him cry aloud. It was like a a man who's been wounded, who yells out in pain. Those are the words that we hear here. Whatever situation is, it's so painful So heartbreaking that it causes him to cry aloud. He's not silent. It is not just a not just a sigh, but a groan. Pain. Some of us know what that's like. To just be in so much pain that we just 
God, why? You know, you just cry out loud. It also seems like this is a time that God doesn't feel that remarkably close to him. It's a time where he feels distant from God. Whether he's right or wrong, it's just a time where he, in all transparency, feels distant from God. Listen to what he says, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. And my night, my hand is stretched out. Why would he need to stretch out his hand if he felt like God was near? Why would he need to seek the Lord if he felt like God was right near him? This is just an honest time of during these painful situations which we all have undergone and we all understand. It's just a time of feeling distant from God. It is not uncommon in the midst of our heartache for God's people to ask simply, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? That's not blasphemous. It's normal, natural pain. Still more, Asaph describes his suffering as relentless. In the day he seeks the Lord, in the night he stretches out his hand. What is he not doing? He's seeking, he's stretching, but he's not sleeping. His soul refuses to be comforted. In other words, nothing anyone says or does is able to properly console his grief. And then the worst grief comes in the fact that whenever he thinks about God, he says, when I remember God, I moan. Again, this should not be surprising to anyone. Asaph knows that God is sovereign. He's a a biblical writer. He's a priest. He knows the attributes of God better than most of us. He's sovereign. He knows that all things have ultimately happened according to God's will. So whatever is happening, whether it was the loss of his wife, whether it was this terminal disease, whatever it was, he is seeing that God is sovereign, and yet he sees his experience of suffering, and he's looking at these two things, and he's wondering, what in the world is going on? How do we align the fact that God is sovereign, not powerful, and can wipe out our suffering with a word, and yet... We still endure suffering. There's sometimes that even the best thoughts about God, sometimes the most truest things, the most peaceful things and and hope-bringing things about God can be enough in our moments of suffering to cause us to groan. Think about a little child who's on the edge of death. To say something like, God has a plan sometimes can bring natural, normal moaning. Why would God plan for that? God is sovereign. He can heal her. Might just bring a moan. Why? Well, why hasn't he? Again, friends, we're not dabbling in blasphemy. We're just being honest up here. God knows the thoughts of your heart before you even speak them. So we mustn't pretend that God doesn't already know what you're thinking and already know what you're feeling. So it's better to speak those things out to God. When we remember God in moments of suffering, sometimes even our good God and thoughts about our good God just causes pain. So what we see then is this honest heartache. But it is faith-filled heartache. Notice that in the midst of his grief, the psalmist still turns to the Lord. 
He cried aloud to God. He trusted that God would hear him. He sought the Lord. He stretched out his hand toward God, meaning that he still prayed. And even though it caused him to groan, he still forced himself to think about God. My friends, the difference between faithless despair and mourning as those who have no hope and faithful lamentation is the orientation of our hearts. If our heart is oriented away from God, and if our grief and our our situation and our suffering causes us to turn from God, to run from Him, to shut off our prayers, to not turn to Him, to think that He doesn't love us anymore, so we're going to run away. And in the process, we wreck our faith and wreck our hope. My friends, that is not God-honoring lamentation. That is not what God wants for His people. God doesn't want his people to despair. Instead, God wants them to grieve with their hearts oriented toward him. Run to him. Stretch out the hand to him. Cry aloud to him. Speak out to him. Pray to him. It is a difference between who we run to that reveals where our hearts are oriented. If our hearts are centered on God before our suffering, then we can know that when we suffer, we will run to him. If our hearts are not oriented toward him before we suffer, we will run away from him. My friends, the difference between despair and biblical lamentation is how you continue to cry out to God in the midst of your suffering. It's not mourning. The, 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 the difference between Christians and non-Christians or the difference between God's faithful people and unfaithful people is not tears, is not questions, is not struggling. Is not gasping. Both do that. I hope you know. The lost weep just like we do. And we weep just like they do. Except one clear difference. We weep to God. That's what sets us apart. That's biblical lamentation. Is it's grief that is oriented to God. Now he continues in his lament saying, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. What he's describing here is this honest unrest. You hold my eyelids open. I can't sleep. Have you ever had a grief so bad that it wakes you up at 1 a.m. in the morning and keeps you up for the rest of the night? Have you ever had fears and and discouragement so bad that they cause you to toss and turn and kick the covers off and you just cannot seem to rest. That's what the psalmist is going through here. C.H. Spurgeon, commenting on this verse, once wrote, Sleep is a great comforter, but it forsakes the sorrowful, and then their sorrow deepens and eats into the soul. I've done a lot of hospital visits. I've been in a lot of death side visits. I've been at a lot of funerals. And one thing I've noticed is that the people who tend to be the closest, their eyes are dark. Because they haven't been sleeping. Bags are under their eyes because they've been suffering. The restless mind finds only a fitful sleep at night if sleep comes at all. And further still... It doesn't just steal away your sleep. Sometimes it steals away your words. The psalmist doesn't just say he can't sleep. He says he has 
No words. It stills his speech. It mutes his mouth. His inward pain is so acute that no words could adequately describe what is wrong. Have you ever been in a situation that you've just been given news and someone comes to you and asks you what's wrong or someone says what's the matter and you just don't know what to say? Where do we begin? Do I start off with my fears? Do I start off with the, the situation itself? Do I talk about the grief? Where do I begin? And then to make matters worse, he began thinking about the good old days before his suffering. The days of old, the years long ago. Now he could have been referring to the days when it seemed that, God, that life was better for God's people. Whatever the case, Asaph wished to go back to those days. He wished that he could go back to the years before suffering. Sometimes in our moments of grief and in our moments of suffering, we long just to go to another time, to a different period where we could have just go without suffering. We, we say things like, if I could only go back to when life was simpler, if I could only go back before my rheumatoid arthritis, If I could only hold my wife's hand again. If I could only hear my husband sing again. We say things like that. It tends to make the grief even worse. Asaph shows what it's like to struggle with this unrest. You can't be content with your time. You can't be content with where you're at. You can't be content in your bed. You toss and turn no matter where you're at. And that is absolutely normal. For God's suffering people. But before you think he's done lamenting. He continues in verse 6. As he begins to ask questions. Now I I just at this moment want you to imagine Asaph standing before us. And he begins asking these questions. What is the first thing you try to do. When he begins asking these questions. My friends. When people suffer. They ask all kinds of questions. And we have to be very careful how we answer them. That is not a time for correction. That is not a time for rebuke. Job's friends did that. And we saw how unfaithful Job's friends were. So before we, before we shame the psalmist for having such thoughts, I think we've got to be careful to understand this is normal. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Has he stopped loving me? Is basically what he's saying. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Now most of us at that moment would probably step in and say, Hush! Stop! Don't say that! No, you're wrong! Let me take you through a three-point sermon for why we know that God is not gracious. Why God has not abandoned his grace in your life. But don't do that. He's not being blasphemous. He's being transparent. He's being open about his questions. He's, he's telling God, God, this is what I feel. This is what the situation has made me feel in this moment. It's the same that Job says in Job chapter 10, verse 1, when he says, I hate my life. Does it seem good to you to oppress? This is him asking God. To despise the works of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Moment of intense suffering. 
And Job's asking God these questions. Abraham, seeing that Sodom's about to be destroyed, himself asked, Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? It is normal to hear questions from the mouths of saints in the moments of their confusion and affliction. My friends, when we hear things like, it feels like God has abandoned me. At a funeral. When we go to the hospital and we hear things like, it feels like God just doesn't care anymore. He doesn't hear my prayers. That's not a time for you to rebuke. Or to make them think that they're somehow faithless. Because they're asking questions. That's the time to open the door wide and say, ask. Ask of the Lord. Ask. Because you know what's, what's one thing that's true throughout Scripture? Whenever God's people and their suffering ask a question, guess who answers? God. Job asks and asks and asks, and because he asks questions, God shows up. Let them ask questions because it's in those moments of questioning. It's in those sleepless nights. It's in, those, in that deep, heartfelt heartache and mourning and grief that they're going through that they're going to meet God. So, you have, my friends, coming officially from the pulpit. Not that I um, am anyone to give you freedom to do this. It's freedom from the Word of God. You have Freedom to mourn. You have freedom to lament. You have freedom to stay awake at night and cry. You have freedom to look at people and say, I just don't know how to tell you what's even wrong with me right now. You have freedom to ask, where is God in all this? But, just like you have freedom to lament, you also have freedom to hope. You also have freedom to hope. In fact, God-honoring mourning, God-honoring lament does not end in lament. It ends and leads to hope. For example, Psalm 77 does not end with, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Instead, Asaph shows us how to press forward in our hope and trust in God. We see in verses 10 through 12 a, a clear change in thinking as the psalmist swings from lament to hope. He says, Then I said, I appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Now, translators tend to struggle with verse 10, but the basic idea is clear. Asaph acknowledges that he needs to change his thinking. He acknowledges that he needs to think on something better. Instead of continuing on with deep meditations of his pain, on his pain, he realizes that he needs to deliberately press himself to see the ancient deeds of God. When he cannot find consolation and comfort in anything else in his life, Asaph chose to find consolation in God's past work. More specifically, he invoked the right hand of the Most High. What do you think he's setting his mind on? He's going back to the Exodus. 
hundreds and hundreds of years before his time. He realizes that in his life at this moment, I cannot find anything encouraging and hopeful. So I'm going to go all the way back to the Red Sea where God's right hand revealed his glorious power and where he shattered his enemy. I'm going to go back to the Exodus for hope. It was at the Exodus that Yahweh, Israel's covenant-keeping God, saved his people from their bitter situation. Saved them from the bitterness of suffering. Saved them from the bitterness of struggle. And so he goes back, and by thinking back on the Exodus, the psalmist expresses hope that God might bring him out of bitterness. Now the lesson's important. In order to find hope and comfort, Asaph had to bring himself out of his own life and to consider the big picture of God's redemption. There are some of us that have been in stints in long seasons of years right now, and we just do not see any light. There's no hope. It's all sadness and discouragement. And what God would have you to do at that moment is to step back from your own momentary suffering and to see his big picture suffer, his big picture of suffering and of satisfaction, his big picture of salvation. And as you step back and you see the big picture, you begin to realize that throughout all time, God has always loved and saved his people. It works out in the end for his people. It works out in encouragement and in strength. At some point, God answers, though we do not always know how he will. We can appeal to the saving right hand of God. And he does so specifically in verses 13 through 15. He points to two specific instances. And both of these instances talk about God's faithfulness of his people, to his people going into Egypt and in bringing them out of Egypt. Perhaps stated better, God is with his people in their exile, in their suffering, and he preserves them in their exodus. Verses 13 through 15, he writes, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. And notice again the change in language. It's no longer I, 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 or my. It is instead you and your. Whereas the first 12 verses speak of his grief, the last few verses speak of God's character and God's nature. Again, this is teaching us how to, be, how, to, how to have biblical lamentation. We shift from thinking about our situation to be thinking about our God. That's how biblical lament works. He acknowledges several truths. First, he acknowledges God's holiness. God has not maligned his people. He acknowledges that his suffering is not a sign of God's unfaithfulness and sin. God has not worked evil toward them. Second, he acknowledges that God is still the glorious God who is bringing all the nations to know that he is Lord. And then finally, he acknowledges God's salvation. He says, you with your arm redeemed your people. My friends, one of the best messages you can give someone in suffering is that though they are in moments of suffering, they are saved by God's grace in Christ. Suffering does not deny the fact that God has redeemed us in Jesus. Suffering can't wipe it out. That's the beauty of it. 
It is permanent. If there's one anchor to hold on to in suffering, it's that. I have been redeemed. Come what suffering may, there is now no condemnation. Because I have been justified in Christ. He goes on to mention particularly Jacob and Joseph. And this is encouraging for a couple of reasons. Both men knew what it was like to suffer. Both men knew what it was like to be exiled. Jacob was exiled when his brother Esau threatened to kill him. Joseph was exiled when his brother sold him into slavery. Both men were symbols of God's faithfulness as they went into Egypt. Went into the land of suffering. Went into the land of slavery and bitterness and bondage. He was faithful all the way into it. And then in the same way we learn from God in our lives that God is with us as we go into our suffering. He's not just with us through it or after it. He's with us as we go into it from the beginning. He's with his people going into Egypt. And he will also be with his people out of Egypt. That's the focus of the next few verses in 16 through 20. When the waters saw you, O God, this is clearly talking about the Red Sea. When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. This is not God. When his people are backed into a corner and their backs are against the sea and Pharaoh is in front of them, this is not God saying, oh well. This is God passionately pursuing his people. Thunder and lightning, all creation bent on rescuing his people. In verse 19 he says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen to any Israelite that day. There was no way out. How in the world are we going to get out of this? And God showed them it would be through the sea. Sometimes... We don't know how we're going to get out of things. We don't know how we're going to be brought out of a situation. Because we can't see God's path. He alone sees it. Sometimes our backs are against the wall and we just don't know how we're ever going to exit out of this. Where's our exodus going to come from? It's at those moments when God in his graciousness and in his love and in his mercy reveals that he is there. He knows his path. And we, when we don't see any way out, he makes a way in his sovereignty. I think it's incredible. Like the first half of Psalm 77, the disciples on the road, uh, on the road to Emmaus spoke with very similar despondency. They had just seen their Savior killed just seen the potential Messiah arrested, betrayed, beaten, mocked, and then nailed to a Roman cross to die. And then some stranger joins them on the road as they're grieving and lamenting, as they're mourning. And here's what they say to him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you hear that? We had hope. Not that we do hope. We had hoped. It was hopeless now. He's dead. He's in the grave. And what's more, he'd been in the grave for three days. It was over. There's no hope. There's no light left in this. What can we gather from this? And it was at that moment 
that this stranger, who they still did not recognize, opened to them the books of the Old Testament, the writings of Moses and the prophets. You know what books that included? Genesis and Exodus. And he shows them that all this was according to God's plan. God's footsteps are leading to the cross. God's footsteps are leading from the cross to the grave and from the grave to an open tomb. And now here to the road of Emmaus. They're in such awe and wonder of this man's teaching that they invite him to dinner. And it's there they realize that before them is standing the resurrected Son of God whom they were lamenting. God's footsteps made clear. His footprints seen in a path that they didn't understand. Just like for the exodus that led through the sea, they would have never guessed that. Just like for the disciples that led to the cross, they would have never guessed that. To the grave and through the tomb, they would have never guessed that. Sometimes God's path in your life is through suffering. And yet, his footprints are still there. God is there with you. This is the hope that God would deliver us from our suffering. And this is the hope that Asaph puts his faith in in verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Just as Jacob and Joseph were symbols of God's faithfulness going into Egypt, Moses and Aaron were symbols of God's faithfulness of his people coming out of Egypt. My friends, God will be with you in whatever season you're in. You may be in a season of entering into bitter, bitter suffering. God is there. You may be in a season of coming out of suffering. Maybe the pain is relenting. Maybe um, you are starting to see encouragements and improvements and things are looking up again. God is there bringing you out again. And God will be there again when he brings us to the new heaven and new earth and finally kills all suffering and death. My friends, we study the Old Testament books not because I want you to brush up on your Bible history. Not because I want you to be captivated by masterful stories, but because I want you to have hope in your affliction. Because I want you to have hope in your suffering. These books remind us that God has made promises. They remind us that God has kept His promises. They remind us that God will forever keep His promises. They speak to us from the past so we can have present hope. They bring us to the cross, to the tomb, so that we will know that God reigns forever. Crucified Jesus was, risen he is forever and ever again. And one day, all of God's people who have died in faith in his promises will rise again. And Jesus himself will wipe away the tears from their eyes. My friends, you must right now have tears so that someday you may feel his warm hand Wipe them from your eyes. You must at this moment die so that you may hear his sweet voice call you from the grave. Embrace your suffering and lament with an exodus-like faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us hope. We thank you, Lord, that no lament is free from an exodus-like faith. And so, God, I pray that you teach this church how to lament well with Christ in mind. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they will know, Lord, so that they will not face their grief and suffering on their own. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.